You're listening to the Permaculture Podcast with Scott Mann, a listener-supported program. This is episode 1536, We Can All Be Builders, and is the complete audio, including the audience question and answer session, from Eric Puro's keynote address at Radical Gathering, recorded on August 21st, 2015. For those of you who watched the video I posted a week ago, there is an additional 20 minutes of material here that wasn't part of the visual recording. As the battery in the camera I was using died, and I couldn't swap it out at the time, but the audio feed continued rolling along. If you didn't watch the video, no problem, just settle in and relax, as you can hear all that and more in this episode. During his address, Eric shares with us the concept of vernacular architecture, what it means to truly build with local sustainable materials and the decisions involved in that process, and invites us all to be active in our roles as builders. He also shares information about the nonprofit ThePush.org, he and other members of his community run, and how we can get involved. The Q&A that rounds out his speech touches on the new community he and his members are creating outside of Berea, Kentucky and Clear Creek, as well as pieces on building codes and personal decisions, creating relationships in order to keep disputes from arising, and how to explore and find solutions to problems of living sustainably, such as how to light your house. I'd like to thank photographer John for allowing me to borrow the equipment I used to make this recording and the video. If it wasn't for his generosity, I wouldn't have this to share with you. I'd also like to thank every listener who contributes to the show. You allow me to keep transmitting out into the ether all this information about permaculture and to document events like Radical Gathering. If you've been considering becoming a recurring patron, sign up at patreon.com slash permaculturepodcast. If you prefer to make a one-time show of support, use the PayPal button on the right-hand side of the page at www.thepermaculturepodcast.com. I'll join you after this speech with some thoughts, class announcement, upcoming interviews, and other information. There's a lot going on behind the scenes for me to share with you. Now then, on to Eric Puro. So I want to start with talking about the name of the festival, which is Radical Gathering. Um, radical basically means of or pertaining to the root, which is what I hope I discuss here today and what I hope that you can see as a general theme of the workshops that we are uh, having also done here in this, this weekend. Uh, it's a really important thing to take some time and just talk about. Uh, today will be a bit more, or my, my talk will be a bit more a reflection about this. So I want to start this talk off with a little guided meditation. So if we could all take a moment to just close our eyes, find a nice comfy spot on the ground, really relax. I'm gonna sit down because it's just much nicer than standing. I see you guys so much better now too. So yeah, go ahead and find a nice spot on the ground and close your eyes. And think about that spot that is relaxing. Where is that physical space for you? Where is a, where's a place of calmness that you find strength in? Could be from your childhood. Could be from today. What does it look like? What does it smell like? What does it, what does it taste like? Okay, I see smiles, so it looks like a lot of people have found this place for themselves. Um, 
I'd like to take a minute, just anyone who wants to share what that space is for them, um, feel free to yell it out and I'll repeat it. Talk about it a little bit. I can share mine. Anybody? You don't have to. Well, okay, I'll share mine, and maybe this will this will bring some confidence to everybody out there. Uh, it might be because we're so like it's a big circle kind of, but for me, it's a place. It's a forest. There's moss on the ground. There's a river that runs through it. There's deer eating right next to that river. There's trees that look like I can climb, um, and it's a beautiful place in nature. And raise your hand if you were also thinking of somewhere in nature. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's basically everybody. Um, that's usually the case. Uh, of course, some people maybe not so, but so my talk for the next hour, that's going to be about that. Why? Why do we feel so good in nature? What is it about the trees and the rivers and the grass? What is it about that space that, that makes us feel grounded, makes us feel calm, makes us feel relaxed? And I'm going to talk to you about my personal path in trying just to answer that question before I even knew that it was a question that I wanted to answer. And so about five years ago, I found myself in Oregon, of all places, really far away from here. And I was actually, I moved to a glacier river. And so I was living in the forest in a tent with some friends, uh, Lauren actually right there, and another guy, Travis, who's not here. Um, and we, we bathed in the Glacier River. We caught salmon that were running. We caught trout. Uh, we fished. We, we dug a, a garden. We had a space where we grew food. And we didn't really know what we were doing there. We didn't really have any. We lived in a tent. We didn't know anything about anything. But we just felt that we needed to be out there. We were, we were backpacking every weekend we were going somewhere. We were walking around in nature, and we just loved it, and we wanted to live it, too. He said, why do we spend a week living in a house in a city? That makes no sense. And so we lived in the woods, and it was amazing, and it was, felt so good. It just it felt right. And so we had a lot of people who came, and they visited us, and they said, you know, this is pretty cool. I kind of I like this. You guys are weird, but I like it, and it's fun. And so we all of a sudden, you know, we didn't know what to do. We, you can't live in the winter out in the forest. So we went back to the city because that's what we knew how to do. And we had all these people now, about 20, 30 people talking to us about wanting to join us and come out and, and, and live with us. Uh, it turned out that about only 10 uh, really made that commitment. But we, we put it out on Craigslist. We said, we don't have any land <laughs> but we want to live on some land. How do we do that? Do you have land? And we found four people within 24 hours actually sent a response email. And they said, come out here. Come check out our land. We've got extra land. We've got a big farm we're not doing anything with. We've got land that is forested that we, you know, way more than we know what to do with. Come check it out. And we were just astounded. We had no idea that that would happen. So it became a situation where we were actually then looking for a place to live. Like, which one of these four places is going to be the best fit for us? We settled on a place outside Silverton, Oregon. And again, it was a beautiful, beautiful summer of living in the woods. We had a glacier river again, a little bit farther to walk to this time. We would go take baths down there with each other. We, would try, we were trying to grow food again. We actually did a little bit different technique this time. Um, but 
all in all, we had jobs. We worked in local nonprofits. We didn't really know what we were doing. We never, none of us heard the word permaculture before. Um, organic gardening was something that we did, but we didn't really know how to. And it was just about getting out there and being in that nature. We climbed trees. We climbed trees a lot. We had a swing on a tree that we spent time in. We, we made a secondary kitchen under what we called family tree, this just enormous oak covered in, in moss. And that's what it was about. That's what it was about. It was about just connecting with ourselves and each other and that space and that nature. And so then, you know, winter, winter was coming. We knew it. It was end of, fall, end of summer. Um, people were starting to leave, saying, okay, I got to go to grad school, you know. I got to go do Peace Corps, you know, whatever beautiful things people decided to do. And, and it turned out myself uh, and two friends were looking at each other like, we don't want to go. <laughs> we don't want to go anywhere. This is exactly where we want to be. We want to be right here in this space. And so we, said, we, we were like, we got to build a house. We got to figure it out. We got to build something. And we, we bought the Earthship books. And we ended up making something that was kind of like inertia, but not really. Um, but basically used tires as the walls. And if you're familiar with this technique or not, um, it's just a, a, a natural building technique. And we used cob to kind of cover the tires. And, and we built a great house. And it served our purpose. And we were living in tents all the way to January because we thought we could build one of these a month. We're like, we'll all have houses, and then we'll make another house that's a community house, and we'll have like four of them in four months, and then it's January, and then we're not, you know, living in a tent anymore. And it was January, we're still living in a tent, and one of them wasn't built, but that's another story. And so here comes, you know, we walk back from, from climbing or something over the, over the weekend, and we'd have this much snow piled on top of our tent. We'd have to shake it off, you know. But it was great. It was just it was just awesome. It was just, you know, you were so alive. And we got this house done and we used, you know, concrete. We used nails. Uh, we used uh, uh, plywood. We used a lot of things, caulk. A lot of things we just didn't know what else we could use. The, the books talk about using these materials. This is what uh, folks at the hardware store say what to do. We just had no idea what we were doing, basically. So we, we built the house, and we, were, we had problems with a few things. Um, some plastic that we had to sort of make a vapor barrier. Um, we painted our, our roof in concrete, actually, <laughs> and then a bunch of paint. And, you know, we just said, there has to be something else. There's got to be another way to do this. Here we are living in the nature, and mo most of the things that we're bringing, I mean, we are using cob and some things from earth here, but most of the things we're bringing from outside. You know, we're bringing from hardware stores, we're bringing from Lowe's, we're, we're bringing from wherever. Well, how do we not do that? And then, okay, now that took a lot of years to figure that, answer that question. Um, so we got ourselves to Europe, and we entered into a time where we were just very sensitive. We started undergoing this process of maybe letting our rational mind leave us when it wasn't needed. When it didn't serve us, we would let it go. And we started feeling more. We started, we took our shoes off. You know, we started thinking about what does it mean to be in this place? What does it feel like to be here? What, what can I learn from walking through that cornfield or this forest? What do I feel? And we able to create a lot of beautiful natural building techniques that were inspired by nature, which is a lot of times what we refer to as vernacular architecture. We look and we see and we learn 
from the local natural environment what we can create. What is an appropriate building here, right here? What is an appropriate building in the foothills of Appalachia? What's an appropriate building in Wales? And they're all different. They're all different. And so we started having very interesting things that now we are kind of learning. We're learning how to thatch, which is a beautiful organic roof just from grass. We're learning how to timber frame, which is connecting wood with wood with this. It feels better for the tree this way, and it just looks better. And maybe you spend a whole day making one single mortise and tendon, and you get that peg in at the last minute, but it, oh, it feels so good, you know? And, and people ask me, I say, why don't you just use nails? And I, then I ask them, have you ever done it this way? And then they join our workshop or they join us building and they don't leave. And they're there for two months because it just feels better. It's not, we don't have to enter into these very intellectual conversations about, you know, climate change or CO2 or what is our impact for seven generations or all these things because it's, it becomes a feeling if you're sensitive enough. Those questions just make sense. The ways to build just make sense. The ways to grow food just make sense. It just becomes intuitive, intuitive process. And so when I actually sat back and I said, what did I learn from all this? What have I, now that I have all this knowledge and I have this sensitivity toward nature, what, what am I taking away? And I found myself, I was, I was becoming more connected with something greater, right? There was something that I was, I was falling into, you know, I don't know, how to, I don't know how to describe it these days, but a stream of consciousness that is bigger than myself. And I was understanding things that I didn't understand before. And I was learning things that I didn't learn before. And I found myself just having a, you get, you get this flow if you do yoga, you know, if you're really into yoga, you get this flow if you, if you really grow food and you're out there in your hands in the earth, you have these moments where you just feel connected and everything is just right. And to me, that's natural building. So this is my path. This doesn't have to be everybody's path. <laughs> Some people love yoga and that is awesome. <laughs> You should do yoga. There's, natural building is a path to connection with nature. It can be an intellectual pursuit, right? right? It can be farming. It can be blacksmithing. It can be probably everything on this workshop schedule can be a path to connection with nature. So, but for me, it's, it's been building. And so I found also with this, I found myself becoming more intimate with my materials, right? You know, I'm spending time with round wood. I'm going through the whole process. I'm cutting the tree down, and I'm, and I'm consciously choosing which tree that I cut down. Then I'm taking that bark off. I'm letting it dry, and I'm, and I'm finding those perfect points to make those notches and put those pegs in. And it feels good. And then you get your roof up, or you get your walls up, or your door frame up, and it has a story. There's a story in there. You remember those moments that, you know, maybe the tree fell down wrong. Or when, you know, my partner Sachi decided that 
there needed to be a smiley face right there, and she carved it. And whatever those things are, it's, it's an intimate connection with, with your life. And it becomes, it becomes more than natural building or permaculture or organic farming or blacks, any of these things. It just becomes a way of life. And you become fluid in this way of life and this way of thinking. And then you just kind of get, it just overwhelms you. You feel like, oh, I need to make... I need to make my own mead to drink, you know, right? I got to make my own pants. I, you know, we're making bows right now so we can hunt our own deer out of local woods, you know, and I want to make a pair of pants that can last me more than six months, you know, and it, it, it envelops you and it's, and it's joyful. And so every step along this way becomes a quality of life enhancement, right? It's just, it's just exciting. It's exciting to be doing all these things. And you leave behind this, maybe this notion that, oh, if I, okay, I'm working at a job and I'm getting this much an hour, and if I do this thing, I could pay somebody else to do it, maybe cheaper for me. This doesn't make any sense anymore. Because the most important thing is that you're doing it. You're finding those, raising bees, you know? You're finding those things that just make you really excited. And you do them. And just life becomes your philosophy of life. Just waking up and going through each day, that's, that's it. That's it. Becoming intimately connected with those processes becomes life, becomes each day. And so after all this, I, I said, okay, well, now we found ourselves in Portugal. We're coming back to the real world now. Not here anymore. We're coming back here. And here, I found myself back in Portugal. And we were offered this pretty amazing opportunity. We, had, we wanted to build bikes, bicycles out of bamboo, because there's lots of bamboo in Portugal. And we wanted to bike to the Rainbow Gathering in Greece, if you're familiar with Rainbow Gatherings. And we were really on this train until the people next door said, oh, you guys know how to build? Can you guys build us a yoga studio? We said, yeah, that's a great idea. So we basically stopped building bicycles. And we immediately went over planning on how to build this yoga studio for them. And so now, it's, now this gets serious, right? So I'm not learning from others anymore. I'm not participating on others' projects. You know, we're not, we're not sampling here and learning from people here. It's up to us, right? We're the ones. So what is it that we create? Given this opportunity, what do we do? What materials do we use? So we built, with, uh, we built with used car tires to be able to recycle those. We felt good about it. We built with cob, which probably a good amount of you saw today. We built with thatch. We built with round wood timber framing. We built with cedar, sh oh, it wasn't cedars, acacia shakes, wood shakes. We built with heat-treated bamboo, which we actually got to the point where heat-treated bamboo becomes as strong as rebar. And now we're making earthquake-proof buildings out of natural materials, you know? Because we had one of my friends, really, it's really funny, what, and don't take this too seriously. He said, it's a yoga studio. People are going to be meditating and in a place of zen. And if an earthquake comes and kills them, they're not going to mind. And I said, you know, I don't want to make that judgment for them. We've got to figure out how to make this earthquake-proof. But they're, 
There is no, there's no one, there's, there's nothing you can read on how to figure that out, you know? So we heat treated bamboo and we, and we stuck it down through the bond beam, which if you want to know what that is, you come ask me. And we basically made an earthquake proof building out of only natural materials. And we, we also did, uh, we made our own pine tar. So we said, okay, you know, we want to do thatch. We don't want to use metal wire because that's an industrial product. And how do we use rope that can last more than a few years, natural rope that lasts more than a few years? And we said, what do those ship people do? You know, the sailors, they would they'd take off on these giant ships and they would sail to America or the West Indies and they would be out for months and they would need some sort of material that would, that would live through that. And they pine, we found out they pine, made pine tar and they pine tarred their rope. So we said, we got to learn how to do that. <laughs> and pine tar is basically you're distilling it out of the roots of pine trees. And so we did that. We made big big batches of it and fires that lasted a few days. And, okay, so now we got a fire that's lasting a few days. That's an excellent call for a party, right? We have a bunch of people over, we make some food, and not only are we making pine tar that's going to help preserve this building naturally, but we're having fun and we're building community doing it anyway. So we, we decided to do a lot of these, you know, kind of crazy things. We, we found uh, windows in the trash, and then we're like, oh, we have to caulk them. And I was like, oh, we don't want to use caulk. And this is really kind of how the process goes, actually, for us. And we said, okay, we got to make caulk. How do you make caulk? And, you, you know, if you Google how to make your own window caulk, there's nothing that's going to come up. So we figured out that if you basically mix a mixture of sap, charcoal, and uh, pine resin, no, sorry, beeswax, sap, charcoal, and beeswax, you can get a mixture that acts as like a waterproof caulking agent. And we said, this is so cool. And we just felt like we could do anything. Like we're just, we could build anything. We could figure out all these questions. And nature provides for it. We just, we just have to learn, we have to observe, right? Because if you look at charcoal, what is it? It's carbon. It's the craziest, strongest thing out there, okay? But it's not waterproof. And it doesn't hold together. It's kind of like dust, right? So then you put on pine sap. Well, what does pine sap do? It's really waterproof, right? So you have that element. But now pine sap wants to crack, right? It's not, it's very brittle. So what is beeswax? It's totally not brittle. It helps things become a bit more pliable. So mixing these things together in, in correct proportions um, can make a caulk that stays waterproof, you know? And it's, and it's just being sensitive to those things. And a lot of it's like walking up and, and you, see, you see sap on a tree after it rained and it's not wet. Okay? And that's, that's, that's the process. It's not very complicated. It just takes the time to look and think. And, and, and we humans today, we have a much different standard of living than how we have been living in houses for thousands of years, right? So how do we meet those standards of living with natural materials? And my guess is that a lot of people in this audience right now are going to find those answers. And we're going to find those answers. And it's going to be with things we never thought before. It's going to be with things out that way. Well, or maybe this way. I don't know. Somewhere around us, this way. We're going to find those answers. 
And we're going to be able to innovate those new, those new building methods because they're all out there. We just have to be sensitive. We have to find what connection with nature we have and how do we develop that more. And so I'm, I'm proud to say that we build with things that we find from nature. I don't know, that, that natural building, sustainable building, I don't know. Maybe we say we build with things that we find from land, from the land that we're on and the land that we're around. And that makes me feel good. <laughs> and, that, and that's all that matters to me. I feel really good about it. And so I want to talk to you a little bit then about um, the push.org. So we started this nonprofit called The Push, and there's some flyers up here if you're interested in checking it out. And it's an organization where there's thousands of people around the world who are on this website who post their natural build projects. And you can go find them through the website and go learn everything that I just talked about for free. They will give you a place to stay. They will give you food while you're there. And you can not only learn how to build your own house or your structure, but you can help an amazing brother or sister or a family help build their house. And so the platform that we provide just facilitates that. And if building is your thing, if you're at all resonated by timber framing and cob, and if you'd like getting your feet dirty today, I would highly recommend coming and grabbing one of these flyers and just checking it out. Because we can all be builders. It is definitely possible. And so I thank you very much for coming here. And we got a beautiful night of music tonight. So thank you very much. So now, okay, we usually do a Q&A. So I would love to open the floor now to just question and answer. I can be the one that answers it. Somebody else can be the one that answers it. But if anyone has any questions about natural building, about the crazy stuff that I just talked about, now is the time to ask your question. You can yell it out. Thoughts and feelings about this talk. We never did make a bicycle out of bamboo. <laughs> we decided that the heat treated bamboo is much better in the walls and, and not killing yogis from earthquakes. <laughs> but it definitely is a project that we want to do again. Um, and so hopefully we will, well, Kentucky cane can get pretty strong, pretty big here. Um, and there is native bamboo here in Kentucky as well. So I hope to find that. And one cool thing that we're going to be doing that's in the, it reminded me because it's in the same family as bamboo, is basically water reed. And so we hopefully will be finding a place here in Kentucky that we can manage um, a reed bed like they do in England. And we can provide reed for thatching um, as a great resource to everyone here who wants to build a house because um, it's just such an incredible resource. And hopefully stay tuned for more information about that. There are some push projects in Kentucky. Um, the one that excites me the most that I've seen, I've only actually looked at one, but it's in the western part, or sorry, eastern part, it's in the foothills, actually fairly close to Bria, it's about an hour away. And it looks like a community of sort of younger people that are experimenting with everything 
building-wise. Probably other stuff, too. But building-wise, it looks like they're just doing a bunch of really crazy stuff. Um, and so if you want to be part of that, drive on out there. And, you know, I want to say, too, that we um, oh, just really, really blessed to have been able to find myself um, being able to be on 62 acres outside Berea, Kentucky. So we are locals now. Um, and anytime you want to come down and learn crazy building from us, too, you're more than welcome. Just ask about Clear Creek when you get to Berea, and you'll find your way there. <laughs> Anyone have any more questions or thoughts? What was your favorite project? Oh, it's really hard. I think kind of every project has, has a really special... A really special place in that time when it happened, you know, like being able to move from a tent to a nice, warm and dry house in Oregon was just incredible. Um, but also building with really local natural material in uh, in Portugal was also really incredible. But I, I would say, you know, for me, that the best project that I've been involved in um, was probably grow Heathrow, which is a squat outside of London that's protesting the third runway of the Heathrow Airport. And what they're doing there is some of the most amazing work. They are uh, questioning personal property rights and questioning land ownership and qu questioning uh, access to housing. Uh, and they're doing it in such a beautiful way. We helped build a straw bill house there that was really cool and a rocket mass heater to help keep those guys warm. It gets pretty cold in England. And, and just, uh, it was such a perfect moment to really meet a lot of the folks there and kind of get to know what they're doing. And uh, I think it helped personally myself grow quite a lot uh, thinking about these issues. Oh, that's a great question. I love that question. Thanks for asking that. So if you didn't hear him, he was asking about building codes, local building codes here in Kentucky. And the short answer is, I don't know too much about building codes. And the long answer is, um, I th it's, it's a personal choice you have to make. You know, there's nothing I can tell you. I, there's no universal answer. And, and the reason he probably brought this up is, is that it's really hard some, in some counties to get permission and legal access to build without, with natural structures, or build with natural material. Um, to do the things that I've just been talking about is a lot of times not legal. And so how you respond to that um, is totally up to you. And I, I, what I've seen, I've seen people's houses get, demol get rolled over with a bulldozer, you know. And I've seen everything from that to, I've seen, for instance, the yoga studio that we built in Portugal. We had the building inspectors come and they said, you know, you guys are crazy. There's no concrete here. That was the one thing that they didn't understand, how you can build something without concrete. And I explained, oh, well, cob is basically concrete. And I, and I explained to him all these different things about the building, and he said, in Portugal, you would be an engineer. And I said, oh, my God, that's an honor, but probably not. <laughs> and they came back, and they said, you know, this is a solid structure, you know, because they don't do timber framing anymore. But he knew. He knew. So... For me, that was a personal conversation that I had with that man about where we can meet, right? Where is the dialogue that we can have? What, what information can I give him 
to help him feel safe because really at the core of all these building codes is that, you know, they, people just want to make sure that their house doesn't fall down, right? And that you're building a house that's safe. And so at the core of all these things, I find, I find beauty and I find love. And so how can I make sure that that is, that is communicated, but we talk about those core things with these different materials? So what it does is it puts a lot of responsibility on the shoulders of anyone who's going to commit civil disobedience, let's say, and build something that is illegal to learn fully about all those materials and how that works. So that when that conversation, or if that conversation does happen, that you're able to be there communicating in a really beautiful way, right? And it's not as simple as, well, I want to build this way, and you can't tell me not to, right? That doesn't usually work too well. And the one, uh, the one place that I did see the bulldozer actually break the house down was because they were not very good with their neighbors, right? There's an, argue, there's, there's an issue between the neighbors and them, and they were not able to, satis- uh, to really get over it, to satisfy that need of the neighbors. And the neighbors didn't care about the houses they're building. They just didn't like the people, and they bulldozed the house. So a lot of times, you know, the only, thing, only time that these building inspectors will actually come out and look at your house is when you are, it's when your neighbor calls them to come. A lot of times they don't have funding to just drive around and kind of see what everyone's up to. Um, so just, you know, engage your neighbors. There's a beautiful thing that we do down in uh, uh, Berea, in Clear Creek, is we have Sunday morning coffee. Mm-hmm. Anybody can show up. It's an open place, we provide the coffee and a conversation, and, you know, you get to meet your neighbors that way, if they choose to come. But you can start engaging them in just conversations as simple as, what's the, wa- what's the weather like? Last night was crazy, my tree fell down. <laughs> I mean, whatever, it doesn't matter, right? You're engaging a relationship, you're building a relationship, and you're finding a vocabulary that both of you can use, so that when the tougher stuff comes up, it doesn't have to be, I'm going to destroy your building by calling the, the building inspectors. Um, the other piece that I chose to do was I, I'm living in a county where there's no building codes. There's no zoning. There's no building codes. Rockcastle County, Kentucky. A little, little taste of Idaho in Kentucky. And I love it. Because, you know, if I were to live, let's say, in Madison County, where, where Berea is, or in, as I understand this county, the people here have said they want building codes, Right? They've told their government, and they've worked in committees to develop these codes and trust these code officers to enforce them. And so do you really want to, like, engage that in a very aggressive way by just building a building here, you know? Or there's also a county I heard that's right over that hill. Everyone can yell the name if you think of it. I don't remember. But I was told they don't have building codes. So instead of trying to do something on this county, you can just move to that county. So that's an option as well. And I think it's just, it, it's a complicated question. It comes down to just personal choice, in my opinion. But best of luck, you know, <laughs> whatever you do. Um, at the PUSH, we do offer a letter writing service. If you ever get the, the building code inspectors called upon you, we will organize and write lots of letters of support to the building code people in support of not destroying your building. Um, we have done and we will continue to do. So, that's an option. (laughs) 
No, it's completely free. So uh, we get we ask we upfront say when you're creating a profile that we are run fully off donations. Uh, it keeps the server going. It keeps everything else going. We are all volunteers. I do not get paid for any work in the push, and neither does anybody else. And so we don't need a whole lot of money to keep it going. So we do not ask for any, any sort of any fee to join. And uh, we hope that people can save money and then provide better food for the volunteers that show up there. You know, whatever else. <laughs> the downfall of capitalism is another talk I give. <laughs> Anyone else have any questions? Any kind of what projects, sorry? Small scale projects? That people could get involved in around here? Oh, okay. like, like what are some small projects that you can basically start, you know, trying natural materials in? Well, I would say uh, the cob oven that's back there is such a beautiful example of how these principles work with each other, but also uh, it's a really good intro to natural building. You get, a, you get to really understand insulation and thermal mass and how these things can play with each other. And you also get to realize, I think it's a very empowering thing because a lot of times these are materials that are not intimidating, right? These are materials that humans have learned and built their houses from for thousands of years, right? These are not things you have to get a degree in. I, don't, I didn't study formally anywhere. These are things that everybody can figure out, you know? So if you go to a push project and you just want to try to learn from them, you'll probably leave with enough information to build your house. It's not complicated. If you, want to, if you don't have something like that around and you want to try like a small scale project, this, you know, maybe not an Earthship, <laughs> but, you know, <laughs> try the oven, try the oven. One really cool thing that we do is uh, it's a bender. And this is one of my favorite natural built structures. It comes from England and it was actually, uh, it's a structure that a lot of, uh, we went to a lot of communities in England uh, and they'll live in them and just basically throw some felted wool over top uh, or some tarps. And it's, uh, it's willow or any kind of really soft green wood that you can put in the ground and bend together and then weave other pieces in. And so you make this really cool dome structure that's really solid, uh, can hold a lot of weight, and uh, can be a great place to just enjoy a kind of afternoon and some lemonade. Um, but you, the most important thing is you get to go out there and you get to just, you know, cut some trees down. You get to feel those trees. You get to put them in the ground, you know. You get to start thinking about how these different forces on the roof sort of work with each other. Where are the places that are loose when I do this? And where can I send more, more branches in? How can I make that work? Um, so I would say don't, don't be intimidated by, by any of these techniques or materials and just go start, you know. There's a really good book called uh, Shelters. Um, I'm blanking on the author's name, but Lloyd he put, Kahn. Lo, yeah, Lloyd Kahn, and he's an incredible man, and he put together all these examples of people doing natural building, mainly in like the 60s and the 70s, and now he's got, of course, another couple of books out with, uh, with future generations doing this work, 
But you kind of look at these pictures and you look at these books and you realize, you know, none of these people really knew what they were doing. They just all kind of figured it out. And so his sort of, you know, intro to the book says, if you don't know what to do, just start. Don't get too overwhelmed by all the thinking and designing and planning. Just do it. Just start somewhere. Put some, you know, find your frost line and dig a foundation, you know, or get, gather some rocks and put some rocks around and just start thinking about it. But yeah, maybe start small if you want to. <laughs> Anyone else have any questions? How do we do lights? Yeah, so that's like, that's actually the toughest thing that we're trying to figure out right now. I, I'm not kidding you. This, this is like sleepless, sleepless nights thinking about lighting because, you know, we don't really have electricity. <laughs> but, you know, candles, they're mostly petroleum, right? So that's not really a good idea. And beeswax candles takes a lot of beeswax. You have to have a lot of bees to really have beeswax candles. Um, Lauren is doing all this research on omnivore oil. So his grandmaster plan, I think, is to go just, like, catch a thousand coons and squeeze all, render the fat down to make oil lamps. I don't know. It's just, it's a hard question, you know? And I'm, I'm reading this really good book right now called A History of Private Life. And it's, um, I'm spacing on the guy's name right now, too. Bill Bryson. Bill Bryson, thank you. It's a lot of support. So Bill Bryson's a great, great English feller. And he's basically giving in this book a history of how the houses that we have now came to be. And one thing that he talked about was lights. And I just opened my eyes and I said, okay, what can I learn? What, 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 how did we live before lighting? And one of the things that he's talking about is that really people didn't care at all that they were in the dark. They just kept doing stuff. I, it doesn't make any sense to me now, but that's, that's the culture. That's what they did. So... You know, if you look at these old architectural plans, uh, designers would actually build stairways quite large so you wouldn't hit each other if you were walking up and down because it's so dark out. And so people are walking around in stairs. They said that back in Victorian houses, they actually would, all the furniture would be on the side. It'd be up against the walls. So the, in, so the middle space of the room would be completely empty. And it would look as, our houses and our rooms would look as weird to them as basically a giant wardrobe, for instance, in the middle of our room would look kind of strange to us. And they did that because when it was dark out, they wouldn't just stumble over everything. So, the, you know, there's kind of a culture that you need to create to live in the dark, you know? I'm not advocating this position. We're going to see what we do. We're going to see if Lauren catches a lot of coons, I guess. Because I don't know, without going hunting whales, or it just doesn't make sense. So... I'm not sure to answer that question. <laughs> but lighting is important, I think, especially in the winter. And so maybe that's it. Maybe we transition to a place where the summer, where it stays light quite late, we enjoy it. And the winter, when it gets dark quite early, we start using candles, and that's maybe our beeswax. It's probably how we'll do it. But you got to find us in a few years once we get set up down in, <laughs> down in Clear Creek. Any other questions? Thoughts?
you guys enjoy the cob oven demonstration today? So I guess, you know, tomorrow on that, we're going to finish it up and, uh, and get a dome over there and, and talk a little bit more about natural buildings. So I hope that um, we can continue this conversation for as long as it needs to happen. And uh, if you feel like it, there's a flyer up here. My email's on the website. And uh, I can answer any crazy questions you have also then. So thank you so much, Radical Gathering, and thank you all for coming here. I really appreciate it. Have a good night. And that was Eric Pirro. Find out more about him and his work at The Push, push is spelled P-O-O-S-H dot org, or by the links in the show notes. Before getting into my thoughts about this speech, a few quick class announcements. Jen Mendez of permikids.com, a longtime friend and sponsor to the show, has a number of online events in September 2015. First are her Edge Alliances. On September 13, join her and other members of the Permikids community to discuss what's home, outdoor place-based nature study. Two days later on September 15 is Connecting with the Natural Wonderment of the World Through the Visual Arts. In addition to those edge alliances, she and Dr. David Blumenkrantz are continuing to share their work on youth and community development through rites of passage, which formed the basis for our interview released on July 16th. Join Jen and David as they expand on those ideas through a series of virtual campfire discussions, the first of which is on September 21st, 2015. You'll find links to those also in the show notes. So, Eric's keynote. I was fortunate enough to not only attend Radical to hear Eric's speech, but also to spend time living in community with him and others for several days in Clear Creek, Kentucky, ahead of the time at Radical Gathering. While I was there, I also recorded a roundtable discussion with folks from that area, which I'm planning to release on September 17th. In that experience, I got to see and begin to understand what it means to be in community with others and the importance of an invitation into something. I was invited to stay with them, but then invited further to help build with them when we made it to Radical Gathering. There, I joined Eric, Lorne, Satu, Adam, and my friend, who I'm calling the other Eric. He joined me for the journey to Kentucky to build the foundation for the Cobb Oven, which I posted pictures to live during the event. Coming from a background where the attitude was, do it right or don't do it at all, I was initially hesitant to join in collecting materials or being part of the construction process. Instead, I was watching from the side and asking questions. Then I was told that the only way that I'd really learn is to do it, and that anything that is done can be undone, so go ahead and hop in. That during this experience there are no shoulds or woulds. I found it to be a very rewarding experience, and as a result, I collected and stacked stones, dug for sandy soil, and had some deep discussions about creating outside the bounds of a schedule-driven, just-in-time-forever-faster system. I slowed down and became part of the construction crew, and with that had the memories of that experience deeply imprinted on myself as I moved stone after stone, and stacked and sorted and tried and tried again. Those experiences leading up to Eric's keynote made that speech of his resonate even more strongly with me, and is why I titled this episode, We Can All Be Builders, because I was able to experience it firsthand. Each of the members of the push, and others unrelated to that work but who live in Clear Creek, Kentucky, opened their doors and joined in at every step of the way to support and grow not only the projects that we faced, but also the people involved, including myself. 
even though it was only a few days, there was a deep exchange of ideas, hard discussions about how do we change the world to a more abundant place. Those people in that place allowed a space for me to let go of my rational mind and begin to feel in a way uncoupled from the facts and figures of daily life. It was a strong reminder of the value of emotions and, as Dave Jackie says, what they can tell us about what is going on in our lives in the moment. There is information in those emotions. And by listening, we can be freed from that rational reductionist side of ourselves more regularly in order that we have the perspective free of those little details that later we can pair the irrational with the reductionist knowledge we gain through education and formalized experiences. We can take those disparate parts and build a new story that is not one or the other, not the weight of the past, not the busy activities of the present or the dreams of the future, but a synthesis of all the moving parts of our lives. What we were, what we are, what we will be, what we have, what we've lost, what we'll gain. All of that comes together into something unique, something novel, something new the world has never seen before. In that mindset, that space that we create within ourselves, we can find the thoughts that are different, those ideas that we need to get out of the situations we find ourselves in, not just personally, but also as a culture, as a society. As a little blue dot hurling through space, our only home that we must care for right now if we as a species will go on. As we uncouple from the stories that were told to us and begin to inhabit our own story, we can creatively use permaculture as a decision-making process more deeply, more fully, more slowly, so that whatever situation we find ourselves in, we can find a solution. Like, to borrow from Eric's speech, talking to a building inspector about the structure we built, how it was built, the materials that were used, and why it is safe in an earthquake zone, even though we are not architects or engineers. We can be good with our neighbors and learn that sharing strawberries or garlic or a beer or wine can create a better relationship than trying to keep them out or keep them separate, but that we still have the option to build a fence if what we do is onerous to others and there is no way to resolve our conflict otherwise. As permaculture practitioners, we have all the tools to create an abundant world. Now all we need are the skills and the space within our particular niche to make it happen. If I can help you with that work, if I can help you in any way turn dreams, thoughts, or ideas into reality, get in touch with me. Email show at thepermaculturepodcast.com or call 717-827-6266. From here, my upcoming recordings and other events, which I'm just kind of lumping together by date, closest in time to furthest away. Coming up in just a few days, Jason Gadeski and I are looking to sit down over Labor Day weekend and record an in-person interview to discuss his thoughts on rewilding and the open-source role-playing game he wrote, The Fifth World, which looks to explore what life might be like after the fall of our current civilization. Imagine what the world would be like 400 years from now. If you are a gamer, definitely check out his website and give the game a try. September 10th, a Thursday and a normal release day for the podcast, 
is the day that I turn 36. I usually take my birthday week off from the show, but may release a personal reflection on some of the lessons I've learned recently and the current direction of the podcast and what I'm doing as a permaculture practitioner. It's been a while since I released an episode of The Plan or really dug in with what was going on, and I'd like to share that with you for those of you who follow such things. September 12, I will be at the Riverside Project outside of Charlestown, West Virginia. That's near Martinsburg and Shepherdstown in that area uh, to record an in-person roundtable discussion. The panelists are currently Nicole Luttrell of Deeply Rooted Design, Jesse Weiner of Liberty Root Farm, Ashley Davis, a permaculture design certified herbalist who runs Meadowsweet Botanicals, and Diane Blust, a retired government worker who is starting her permaculture homestead, Chicory Hill Farm. We'll be kicking off that day at around 2 p.m. with our first recording to run from 2.30 till 3.30, a short break, record the second session from 4 until 5, and then have a potluck from 5 until, well, whenever it ends. This is an open event, however spaces are limited. If you'd like to find out more or RSVP to attend, email Emma. Her address is info at theriversideproject.com. On September 16th, Lisa Rose, author of Midwest Foraging, joins me to talk about that book and her other work. September 19th and 20th, I will be returning to Mother Earth News Fair in Seven Springs, Pennsylvania to see what's going on and catch up with some old guests and see about recording some new in-person interviews. Late September, though we're still working on what the exact date will be, Peter Michael Bauer returns to continue the conversational rewilding. We are also still working on what to talk about, but with the direction our personal conversation went after the recording ended for the last interview, this one could be another place where we wind up digging deep. On October 6th, Sandor Katz joins me to talk about all things fermentation and culture, the first week of November, again, we're still firming up a date, Brad Lancaster returns to share strategies based on the work of the desert harvesters to collect water in an urban environment in order to support native perennials that are planted in public right-of-ways. If you have questions for these guests, get in touch via the usual email address or phone number. Those again are show at the permaculturepodcast.com or 717-827-6266. You can also use those if you want to talk about permaculture with me, ask a question directly, or would like to set up a roundtable recording in your community. If you would like to do that, just let me know and we can work out the details. You can also get in touch with me by sending a letter through the post. That address is the Permaculture Podcast, P.O. Box 16, Dauphin, Pennsylvania, 17018. Now, with all that said, this episode of the Permaculture Podcast draws to a close. Until the next time we share space together, take care of Earth, yourself, and each other.